Our reading of God's word continues uh, with the conclusion of Matthew's biography of Jesus, reading in chapter 28. Listen for God's word to you. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all of the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, today is Trinity Sunday. And um, it's the 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 secret advantage to coming to church on Trinity Sunday is this: you know that the preacher is not going to tell you to do that. You know, uh, a lot of the time you come to church and there's going to be some reading, and the preacher is going to say, "You need to be more like Jesus here. You need to be more loving. You need to be more kind. You need to be more holy." And on Trinity Sunday, the preacher is not going to tell you to be more like Jesus because Jesus is one person in the Trinity and there's no way you can be like that. Or is there? Well, <laughs> let's think that over. Because, you see, I'm not even sure if we can understand what the Trinity is. The Trinity is a mystery. The 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 greatest minds of the church for 2,000 years have wrestled with the question of what the Trinity is and they have said it is a mystery. And they mean like a really deep mystery. I mean, this is not Agatha Christie's going to eventually come to the bottom of it. They mean they're not sure there is a bottom to this ministry, uh, to this mystery. So, so, um, the, the word itself uh, was coined by a, um, the, the word Trinity uh, was coined by a, a theologian who was wrestling with the fact that the Bible has all this language that talks about the three persons who seem to be active in the work of God, uh, according to Scripture. Let me give you an example. This is just uh, fortuitous. Um, I, I have a daily Bible reading plan. And right now, in the New Testament section of my Bible reading plan, I'm reading the book of Acts. And today I read about the stoning of Stephen, the first, the first martyr of the church. And it says how Stephen was, uh, at the end of his trial, he's about to be stoned to death, but at the end of his trial, it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he saw the glory of God, and standing at the right hand of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And theologians have said, this kind of, uh, this kind of language is all through the Bible. There's these three actors. And we're not, they're all God and yet they're all different. And we're trying to figure this out. And so theologians in the early church, people, um, in the first and second century wrestled with how do we make sense of who's doing what in this picture? So we know Stephen's about to get stoned to death. We know the crowd that's trying him. But who are these other three? And how do they relate to one another? And so from the early days of the church, people wrestled with questions like that. And uh, one of them was an African um, theologian named Tertullian. And he uh, coined this word uh, Trinity. He took the word for three and the word for unity, and he said, try unity or Trinity. 
There had actually been a Greek word, and somebody had come up with that a couple of years earlier, but it never really caught on. But Tertullian, he came up with the word that has caught on, and that was about 200 A.D. And it took another two centuries before the church really kind of resolved where the church stands, what what we believe the Trinity actually means. But it's ultimately a mystery. And the way that theologians typically define it is they say, well, it's not that, it's not that, and it's somewhere in the middle, but I don't know if you can pin me down on any particular thing within this spot. About a hundred years ago, a theologian named B.B. Um, uh, Warfield um, from Princeton, the last principal of Princeton, they, after that they changed the title to president. Um, so the last principal of Princeton Theological Seminary, um, he uh, studied all the, all the things that people had uh, said about the, the Trinity, and he tried to define what was the common ground of the Trinity. What, what do we believe about the Trinity as opposed to where the boundaries are? And he said there's three things to understand about the Trinity, and they are on the next slide because I won't remember them. All right, they, these are the three things. There is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The second point is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each God. And the third point is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons. He said, those three things you can hang on to, that is Trinitarian uh, uh, doctrine in a nutshell. And if you go much beyond that, good luck, because you may wander out of the, the range of Orthodox Christian teaching. You may wander right up into heresy. Let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. These three points, if you were to go to every single church on Jewel Lake Road, even around the corner on Diamond, you go to the Baptist Church or the um, Foursquare Church on Diamond down here uh, at the end of Jewel Lake, um, uh, they adhere to Trinitarian understanding. If you go to the Nazarene Church on 88th Street or Gloria Day Lutheran or the Catholic Church or the Assembly of God Church, if you go to us, if you go to the Baptist Church up here, if you go to any of the churches on Jewel Lake Road, you will find that they all adhere to Trinitarian thought. They believe that there is one God in three persons. The three persons are each God and the three persons are distinct persons. So, that is historic Orthodox Christian understanding. If you go to the Orthodox churches in town, they believe the same thing. Uh, this is what what Orthodox Christianity has held for 1,600 years now. Really, since the beginning, but it's been formalized for 1,600 years. But there are other people who call themselves Christians who do not adhere to this. So, for example, if you go down Strawberry Road, if you go to the Mormon church, they will tell you that there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are each distinct gods. That there are actually three gods, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, we would say they may be nice people, and uh, who knows uh, uh, you know, what we can say about them, except they do not fall within the boundaries of historic Orthodox Christian thought in the area of the Trinity. Uh, also across town, somewhere else across town on 18th Street, there's a Unitarian church. What the Unitarian church holds is that there is one God, so they agree with the first part of that, of point one, but they say it is God, God the Father, God the Creator. They say that there is that one God, and then they have different beliefs about Jesus Christ and about the Holy Spirit. So there are people who call themselves Christians who um, admire Jesus but do not fall within the boundaries of Orthodox 
Christian understanding. So we have this idea that there's boundaries, but that doesn't tell us what's in between because ultimately there's nothing like it on earth. There's nothing we can point to and say, there it is. There's a trinity for you right there. Ultimately, all we've got is the boundaries of what Trinitarian thought is. And we know there are people who are outside the boundaries. So that's that's the good news. The good news is you don't have to be like that. And you don't even have to understand it because if you do, you'll be the first. So that's the that, that's kind of the, the, the challenges of, of um, the Trinity. Uh, one of the problems with the Trinity, because it's not in the Bible, I mean, it's all through the Bible, but it's not explicitly stated in the Bible, is it's hard to get your head wrapped around all this. Let me give you an example. If I was to ask you, what's your favorite story about Jesus? You'd probably, you know, there's the the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you like the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you like the, the Good Samaritan. Maybe you like some other story about Jesus. Um, but you probably have a story. If I was to ask you, what's your favorite doctrine of Paul? You might have more difficulty answering that. Jesus was smarter than Paul. Paul, Paul was very smart. Um, but Jesus was smarter. Jesus taught in parables. Jesus said, God's kind of like this. And he told stories, and they're memorable. Doctrines are not memorable. And that's a problem for us today because this is the one day in the church when we celebrate a pure doctrine. You know, at Christmas, we celebrate the doctrine of the incarnation, but we don't really. What we celebrate is the fact of the incarnation, that one day in history, Jesus came and was incarnate. At at Easter, we celebrate the doctrine of the resurrection, but not really. What we celebrate is that one day in history, Jesus was raised from the dead. Most of the special occasions in the church, we don't celebrate a doctrine, we celebrate an event. Even at the end of the year, when we put up the purple and we get ready for Christmas, we're celebrating an event. We're celebrating the doctrine of the second coming at Advent. And it hasn't happened yet. But we believe that it will happen at some day in history. And so we celebrate it in anticipation. Because stories are a lot easier to celebrate than doctrine. But today, we've just got the doctrine. All we've got is the doctrine. There's no date that we found out that, that Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God were all the same being. So, <clears throat> what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a lesson from Jesus, and I'm going to pick some stories. So I've got two stories. One of them is not much of a story because it comes from Paul, and he wasn't big on stories. The other one is part of the story of Jesus. So we're going to look at these two lessons and see what they teach us about the doctrine, because stories are easier to remember than doctrine. So, the first one um, is from... Uh, Paul's <clears throat> Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. People actually debate was it the second because he in in the second letter he talks about another letter that seems to have gone missing. So we don't know is this the second letter or the third letter? It's the second one we have, but <clears throat> it's the second one the church retained. So in it, uh, Paul has told the church some things, but then the last part of the letter he spends time defending his apostolic authority. See what had happened is this church had. Um, gotten into a bad place. There were factions in the church. I know this never happens today, but there were actually different groups in the church that didn't like each other and they didn't agree. Some of them liked this pastor, some of them liked Paul, some of them liked Apollo, some of them liked Cephas or Peter. So there were these different factions and they all liked their little, their little group and they hung out with their little group. 
And one of the things that that, that caused is they sent a lot of uh, shade Paul's way saying, Paul isn't really all that hot. You know, I heard he's not all that much of an apostle anyway. So what, right? He used to persecute the church, whatever. So Paul spends a lot of time at the end of this letter defending his authority. And then at the very end, he turns the page and he says, actually, the one who should be examining themselves is you. Our, our translation is pretty weak in the, in the, um, original biblical language. Verse five is even stronger. He's saying, examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. It's more like, no, you, you should examine yourself. It's really pretty strong language. Um, so he says, no, turn it around. But what he says, is the way you, the reason to do that, the reason you need to examine yourself is he says, I planted your church. Suppose you find out that you're good Christians. Well, that's an argument in my favor. But suppose you find out you're bad Christians. That would actually be the best proof of what you're saying, which is I'm not a good apostle. If you aren't good Christians, then I'm not a bad, then I'm not a good apostle, right? So the only way you can win this argument is by losing it. And so he says, he says, I hope you will recognize we have not failed the test of apostolic authority. He says, we pray to God, you will not do what is wrong by refusing our correction. Some of them have been saying, Paul, why don't you show up? If you're so hot, why don't you show up here and do some miracles, right? Strike some people dead. And he's going, be careful what you ask for, right? He's saying, you know, you, you may not want, you know, you may be on the wrong end of that. So he says, I hope that you will not do what is wrong by refusing our correction. I hope we won't need to demonstrate our authority before we arrive. Do the right thing before we come, even if that makes it look like we fail to demonstrate our authority. If you do this without being, without me being, being there to force you, that may make it look like I'm weak, but I'm prepared for that because I want you to be strong. He says, we cannot oppose the truth. We are glad to seem weak if it helps show that you are actually strong. And then he concludes the letter by saying, I close my letter with these words, Be joyful, grow to maturity, encourage each other, live in harmony and peace, then the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet each other with a sacred kiss. He says, become Christians. Quit acting like a bunch of squabbling political parties. Become Christians, love each other, encourage one another. Be united. He says, I know that's hard, but may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the, that's the front door, right? You always come in through the grace of Jesus Christ. May the grace of Jesus Christ, the love of God, God is the God of love, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the unique kind of fellowship that only the Holy Spirit can offer, may that be with you so you can do this thing, so you can be united. So Paul says, be united. Get over this bickering. Okay. So that's the first lesson. And he concludes with this Trinitarian formula, the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. One of the places that, again, theologians look at and say, see, see, who's, what's going on here? The Trinity, right? So that's our first lesson. The second lesson, the Great Commission. Stories are always more memorable than doctrine. There's not a name for that other reading, but there's a name for this reading. The Great Commission, the 11 disciples left for Galilee. They went and they found Jesus, or they fe- they went to where Jesus said, and then Jesus came to them, and he told them, I've been given all authority in heaven and earth, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations. And then the Trinitarian formula of baptism, you hear it here whenever we have a baptism, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you, 
And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the Trinity is, is expressed here in a couple of different ways. One is the, the flat-out statement, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But there's also a Trinitarian action that's at work here. Because Jesus says, I've been given authority. Who gave me authority? Well, on earth, maybe some king gave me authority, whatever, right? But I've been given authority in heaven. The only one who could possibly be giving me authority in heaven is God. So behind this statement is God. So we've now got God the Father, God the Creator, God who rules in heaven has given Jesus authority. And then he says at the end, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus says, I have not left you as orphans. I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you when two or three are gathered in my name. There I am among you. Jesus says, I am in heaven but I'm also with you. How can I do that? By the power of my Holy Spirit. So not just the bare statement in the baptismal formula, but in the whole commission, there is this view of the Trinity, the work of the Trinity here. But do you notice what Jesus says? Buried in the middle of that, the place that Jesus says this is a command. He tells the church to make disciples. He says, go and make disciples. As you go along... Make disciples of all the nations, people who aren't at all like you, the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and teaching them what I have commanded you. Jesus says, become more diverse. You know, if I have one Christian in a room and its diversity is X, then when I add a second Christian, I'm going to have more diversity, not less. Whenever I make a new disciple, the body of Christ becomes more diverse, right? Even if the church includes a pair of identical twins, identical twins are not clones. I can tell Kent and Phil apart from the back because they're that different. Jesus is calling the church to become more diverse. And Paul said, be united. Jesus is saying, Jesus is ruling out the thing that often leads to unity. Because so often our unity comes from uniformity. We say, I can get along with these people, Paul, because what I've done is I've ridden off all the others. Right? Everybody who disagrees with me, you know, you do this on Facebook, a lot of you, right? It's like, I like my friends and I have pretty much quit seeing the others. Facebook has quit showing me their stuff because I never like it. And we act like we're Facebook. We rule out the people who we disagree with. Paul's saying unity, and Jesus is saying, but it can't be a unity that is based on uniformity. It can't just be your little cozy group of people just like you. Jesus is saying, keep adding to that. Keep making it more and more diverse. He's ruling out the trick that we play so we can have not unity, but uniformity. There's only one thing I can think of where we have true diversity along with unity. That's the Trinity. The Trinity. There is unity. There's no distance at all between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But they are distinct persons. And Jesus is saying the church should be like that. You should all be different. You should glory in your differences. You should be distinct people and keep adding to your distinctness. But Paul is saying, don't fight. Encourage one another, love one another, greet one another with a holy kiss. 
You know, I think we can think of churches that, that lean in both directions. We've all heard of the, the big church that has a big focus on evangelism, and they're always out knocking on doors. they got people coming into the church. They're baptizing people. But they don't stay. There's nearly as many people going out the back door as there are coming in the front. There are churches that are really good at the Great Commission. But you don't want to be in them. And then there's other churches. I think that this church is one of them, where we pretty much like each other. And we're happy to be part of this group. But we're not so good at evangelism. We're not so good at bringing other people in, in improving and increasing our diversity as Jesus commands us. Jesus says we need to be united, but it can't be uniformity. It has to be unity. We need to be diverse. We need to keep adding to our diversity. And the only way we can do that is with God's help. Because it's hard. Look at your Facebook page. It's hard for humans to get along with people who are not like them. But we can do it. We can be that kind of church because that's the kind of God God is. We can do it with God's help. And if we fail to do it, may God help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus by the power of your Spirit, praying not for a deeper understanding of your being, not for a greater depth of knowledge of the Trinity, but for your grace that you would make us united and you would, at the same time, help us to become ever more diverse, ever more distinct, ever more ourselves, even as we encourage one another and love one another and act in unity. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in his spirit. Amen.